morning and welcome to Psychedelic Healing. I am your host, Sonia Cotto, nurse anesthesiologist and mental health advocate. Welcome. I, this evening, get the honor of speaking with Dr. Elena Eicher, PhD in Switzerland. We are going to have an amazing, amazing conversation with her today. Her primary academic background is in psychology. She worked as a research assistant at the Department of Personality Psychology, focusing on positive psychology and tutored on behalf of the Department of Psychological Methods, Evaluations, and Statistics. At the University Hospital of Psychiatry in Zurich, Elena conducted a clinical internship and joined the Department of Neuropsychopharmacology and Brain Imaging to study the effects of psychedelics and meditation. During her doctoral study, she completed an EEG study, brain mapping, on out-of-body experiences and mood, worked on the Global Ayahuasca Project and investigated DMT formulations and interventional studies, focusing on empathy and prosociality, including neuropsychophysiological, psychometric, and phenomenological methods. Wow, so much and a lot of big words. Um, she has done so much work, and today we are going to be able to discuss wonderful outcomes that she's had, also other outcomes, uh, not so good, and really the difference in what she's experienced in Switzerland and in the differences with the U.S. as well, um, how that has uh, shifted their ability to research and advance psychedelic healing. Welcome, Elena. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our discussion tonight. Oh, yes, yes. Thank you so much for having uh, coming on and allowing us to discuss all your research. Um, what, you know, in Switzerland, you've always, I guess you've grown up. How long has psychedelics really been legal over in Switzerland? Yeah, it's uh, an interesting question. It's not that it's legal here. So I think uh, Switzerland has maybe a different approach towards psychedelics and like a very different history but it's not that it's legal as medical doctors or psychiatrists primarily there's the opportunity because of how the law is written that you can apply for exceptional use to treat patients outside of, of uh, clinical studies so there's a possibility in exceptional cases to treat patients but it's not legal in a broader sense so but it's a very okay. interesting history, yes. Yeah, it's been definitely difficult here to get the studies, but they're slow, slow growing at the universities. So how did you actually get into psychedelics mm -hmm. and the studies? Questions. I think I was interested in cultures and other places, like plants in general, very early on. And then I just read a lot about it. And I was fascinated by what, what I read. Yeah, and then it is really like I was studying something else, but then I really decided to go into psychology with the goal to understand also these altered states better and more towards therapy-oriented. So I really had the idea to be a psychotherapist. But then I was lucky enough to really join researchers in Zurich, like Franz Vollenweider's lab, so I learned that I can actually study these things in academia. And that's where I am at the moment at these intersections. So I'm into research, but also doing therapy, uh, which is... Oh, so you're actually doing, uh, seeing and practicing with patients currently with psychedelics? Yeah, yeah maybe a day per week. Uh, okay. So yeah, because it's, it's a lot of work. 
yeah, yeah, it is. But but uh, it's really a passion. I think if you're passionate about it, it goes with the flow. Yeah, and it's really also I think uh, this combination of doing research and working in the actual field gives uh, fruitful because uh, you learn so much. And doing studies is a very different setting than being in an actual like out there. So um, these perspectives of them, um, yeah, complement each other, and uh, that's very crucial. Were you ever seeing patients before the ability to use um, psychedelics, and how did you know the difference before and after? If if so, I didn't see actual psychotherapy patients before because. Mm-hmm. Because of my background, I kind of stepped into the psychedelic assisted treatment. Then, like my other clients uh, that don't do psychedelic assisted treatment, they came after. But before working in these limited medical use contacts with psychedelics, assisting my psychiatrist um, colleagues, I already worked with holotropic breathwork, kind of the start before the psychedelics, because I knew. I want to work only legally, and that was the option. Yeah, you mentioned the holotropic breath work. I've done holotropic breath work. I've done shamanic breath work. And all those things almost induce this psychedelic experience in our bodies, in our minds. It's just so magical. And I think one of your studies, you actually studied the brain mapping and changes and compared to... I guess just meditation, but meditation compared to psychedelics. And what did you find in those brain studies? So the study with uh, psilocybin and medication, I did not do brain imaging or EG or so. I was mainly focusing on the experiential factors. So I I looked at the report. So we had, like they had a group setting, but then we also had the one-to-one setting where we had some uh, mental imagery so this was really nothing um, neuroimaging, but more phenomenological and psychological. And um, yeah, what I found something, for example, which I found very interesting is that um, I thought that emotional expression would generally be uh, increased, but this was not the case. It was just the, the implicit emotional expression, which was increased, but the explicit emotional expression, for example, I say, I feel sad or... I am happy. This actually decreased. So this was interesting. And so kind of go into more detail because I didn't really understand. Like, so they wouldn't be, would explain or express that they're feeling a certain way. It would be decreased, but they would actually feel. Is that what you're saying? That they would actually the way physically feel it? Or, yeah. So the way they express what they expressed or um, like implicit expression of emotion, like also crying or laughing or also describing um, a positive uh, seeking theories that increased, but they did not so much express explicitly anymore what, uh, how they would feel, which uh, like explicit emotion expression would also require some sort of secondary process thinking. So it tom- like, yeah, like, it's not the direct expression, but already processed recording of what I'm uh, experiencing. So, you know, second like a self-analysis, like a self-analysis yeah. of like, oh, this is what I'm feeling. That is true. Yes. Oh, yeah. Maybe we're just not, uh, after that experience, we just feel and don't need to analyze and describe. We just are, perhaps. Maybe. Right? Yeah. 
What other studies have you done? So in part of your bio, you talked about pharmawaska, ayahuasca versus ayahuasca. What is the difference between that? Yeah, I wouldn't call it pharmawaska anymore. I mean, it makes it more easy to just write this word, but it's not actually accurate. So ayahuasca, you know, is this brew um, originating in the Amazon region, and it's very different depending on the tribe where it uh, made, and it also contains a whole culture. And uh, so what we did was we were inspired by ayahuasca, but then we just, yeah, we went through a whole process of uh, thinking it through how to implement such a medicine, maybe also in our framework and uh, how to also bring it to patients. And we ended up, yeah, so this is now uh, like a drug development company who ended up doing a combination of DMT and harmine, which are uh, two of the compounds found in most ayahuasca booths. And so it's ayahuasca-inspired medicine, but it's something different. So it's a, an inspired medicine, but it's a DMT harmine formulation, which we okay. um, tested in several trials now. Yeah, those finding and uh, also with the combinations of the two molecules and also different settings and um, so that's what we're doing mainly. Oh, nice. And so you find that, so it's essentially the same thing, just made in a, a lab, kind of compounded together in a pharmacy. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's the same thing. I think if you, like, like for the people there in the Amazon, ayahuasca is not just the molecules, really not far more. What we did was taking other plants. So they also work with the plant teachers and we took other plants. So <clears throat> already in the Amazon, you find different plants in the brew. So each tribe has its, its own recipes, but we took even Mediterranean plants and extracted it. And now uh, as the company moves further, um, they even changed to synthesized molecules. So you really have the pure DMT and farming uh, synthesized. So saying it's, Basically, the same is very reductionistic. So happy with this pharmawaska, but it makes it easier to for a short communication core. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely understand the the way you feel, and most people do feel about the same thing. Is and that's what we're all concerned about is getting away from the tradition of the plant medicine because you know that's all the biotech companies are trying to do with the pharmace pharmacies is try to make this compound just as they did with the cannabis, let's not make cannabis legal, let's make all these other pharmaceutical pieces of it like Marinol and other pharmaceuticals. Uh, same thing now with psychedelics that, that they're trying to do is create those pharmaceutical compounds to be able to deliver it in that way as well. So it is a definitely, especially ayahuasca, it's a very ritualistic experience, very healing for a lot of people, but the ceremony and the rituals and the community um, is important. What do you, how did you feel in that study? Were, were you part of that study with the ayahuasca? The only study with actual ayahuasca I, I did or I was involved in is this global ayahuasca project, which is a survey based uh, global, a global survey. So we had uh, many participants all over the world filling out the survey online, but the, <clears throat> the studies here in Zurich with the DMT and harmine and yeah, what we did was um, basically like pilot studies with those finding and also trying out the 
the ratios and formulations and administration. And then we did some very fundamental neuroscience um, studies, which um, yeah, we had different uh, neurophysiological and neuropsychological tasks. So you imagine people sitting in this room or very comfortably and there the music and a nice, nice light and a good company. But then they also sit in front of the computer and do some tasks throughout the day. Oh, at the, uh, while on the medicine as well? Yes. So we put on EG caps with electrodes and uh, we also uh, draw blood every 15 minutes, for example. So they, we don't um, peak them um, every time we draw blood. So they have a, a, a little tube where we can just go to the tube and draw the I was about to say that might be a little traumatic every 15 minutes getting poked. <laughs> no, that's not what we do. Um, but when we tube. So, um, so it's about blood chemistry and um, metabolites. So really fundamental and how the brain reacts under these substances. But then we also have interviews about how they feel and also to understand in which way they experience what they experience. Also about the content, what they experience, but also in which way do they experience. So more like on a phenomenological level and then of course questionnaires about challenging experiences or psychological insights and these uh well-known scales like altered states of consciousness rating scales we also had so this was uh, very much in the beginning and then we continued with a group study which was very exciting we just finished um yeah some weeks ago where we had people uh, in uh, group settings and this was really a learning experience also and very interesting. And again, uh, uh, we draw blood and everything. So it's again, uh, um, in terms of the research questions, also a pharmacological study at the basis, but also about um, experiences in the group and the interviews. Yeah. So you in each study, you have so many measures um, because oh, yeah. it's a huge and uh, very much effort to put on such a study. So it's really a lot of time and effort that you have to put in and then get a lot of data out of it. So we have blood and brain and uh, questionnaires and interviews. Yeah. Yeah. So in all of those with like the blood studies and everything, what has been like the the safety uh, outcomes or what were you necessarily looking for with the blood? In terms of blood level analysis, we were mm-hmm. mainly looking into PKPD, so pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics relationships. So looking at the actual metabolites and like the, the substance in the blood. So how are the blood levels of DMT, harmine and their metabolites? So how with which um, enzymes, for example, are these uh, substances in the body metabolized? Um, so this is one of the questions and then also uh, we're going to look into also like hormones and things like yeah more these other health related things also cortisol for example Mm -hmm. and in terms of safety you always record adverse events in these kind of studies and we also recorded um, on a high frequency um, things like headache, nausea, nausea and um, how people felt if they, like we have this list of potential 
physiological and psychological adverse events. Doesn't necessarily need to be an adverse event, but if they felt bad about something, we recorded this. I think in this very safe setting, which we create uh, with a lot of comfort and uh, support, usually if you screen the participants well, there are big issues. But of course, people go through difficult states sometimes. Most often it's transient, or in our case, it was always transient. Maybe two times we needed a bit more, uh, more psychological support throughout these studies. So sometimes... So that was really the most um, adverse is, I mean, and I've, I've noted that with uh, ketamine too, when there's somebody's going through a difficult time, is that really the most adverse event that you've noticed? Was there any like medical emergencies as far as safety or was it really just psychological needing that extra support? No, no physiological medical emergencies so far, I hope it. Uh, but of course we do, we do a lot of uh, proper screening. So the people that we include in our studies, they are very well screened in terms of physiological health and also psychological health. So yeah, some people need support in a psychological way, often not much, and the presence and just being there is often enough. Uh, but overall, they, I would say, enjoy the experience. And something I find also very interesting is that many people say that, or we had some reports that they said, look, I'm going to ride these challenging experiences. But don't confound it with something that is bad. So they said these challenging experiences were sometimes really also helpful or, or they had an intrinsic value for them. So I think it's also a matter of understanding what happens, but also what it means to them. All right. So if they yeah, and I see that all the time. I see that all the time with ketamine as well. It's, I mean, I think everybody's with that terminology, bad trip or bad experience or traumatic. And I, just like you said, it's, it's not, it's something that can be beautiful for them, for them afterwards, being able to process it, you know, having the right support, the right environment that you guys provide and having the, the people there for the psychotherapy and psychological support that is needed to be able to work through that, or at least just to be there and let them process it on their own if that's what they choose. So yeah. that's nice. Yeah. What other medicines have you used? The ayahuasca, uh, and then you said psilocybin, and then DMT separately, or is it with the ayahuasca? Um, it's not ayahuasca. It's just DMT and tarn. So it's just this combination. So this combination we tested. I mean, when I was in France, following by this lab, we did the study with LSD and one with psilocybin, but that was some time ago, and now. Yeah, so my main focus is on this DMT farming formulation. I'm also involved in another study where we actually uh, look into therapeutic or therapists' variables. So we don't investigate the patients, but the therapists, and there it's with MDMA and psilocybin and LSD. And of course, with the patients and the practical work outside of the studies, uh, in Switzerland, you can work with LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin as well. So these are the three mainly used, but my main research focus is certainly with the DMT and harming. 
How long is is the duration of action? Because when you're looking at the metabolites and then, you know, with the blood work and you see, is there a difference in duration of action that you've noted um, from the other medicines or the traditional ayahuasca? Yeah, so DMT has a rather short half-life. Mm-hmm. Even if you combine it with the uh, with the harmine, which uh, is the Mao inhibitor, you still have a rather short half life. So if you just give one dose, then effects last maybe two hours. I think the half life is around what was it? Oh, three hours maybe. Uh, the half life is between sixty and ninety minutes. I I think I would have to check again. So. This is rather short, but there's no tolerance, so you can actually dose up. And that's what we used. Uh, we used this incremental dosing where you can dose or even pre-dose with harmine, go up with the DMT concentrations so you can prolong it. And we sometimes went up to six, seven hours depending on the dose and the administration route. That's also part of the dose finding studies. That's nice because you can actually really control the duration of the session. Pretty much. So I'm aware that many people like this jumping into the cold water of the ayahuasca, but I think for some patients it might just be better to having a very smooth approach where they can stop and go further as they prefer. Oh yeah, definitely. And how do you spell harmine? Because I actually had never heard of it. So now I'm going to dive deep into um, this new... Uh... H-A-R-I-E. Yeah, so okay, it's not the compounds. One of the better carbolines you find in ayahuasca and the wine. Um, there's also harmaline and others, but we decided to go for harmine because it also has low toxicity compared to harmaline, for example. So interesting. I learned so much during these uh, sessions. I love it. Getting back to, you mentioned that some of the studies mentioned that you studied the therapists and the variability with the therapists. Um, what did you, what do you really know and what are you looking for in the variability of therapists? Mm, so the actual question we addressed there is uh, this topic that's widely discussed at the moment is self-experience, a personal experience with psychedelics important or valuable or maybe, on the other hand, risky for the therapist himself. So what we are doing now, so we just started half a year ago, it's going to be a longer study. We investigate the actual therapists and, and they, as part of the study, go through various psychedelic experiences themselves in different settings with the different doses and um, substances. And it's an open label study, so it's not controlled, no uh, no control group, and there's no placebo. So it's really a very fundamental open label first study to see how it works and what they report us. And we're gonna look into some therapist variables, for example, empathy or therapeutic attitude and mainly also all the conducting interviews and exploring what the value of these uh, personal experiences were for the therapists themselves. 
Well, so it's more of like a subjective versus for their experience. Like if they feel like they're a better therapist, the fact that they've experienced it. Maybe if they're better therapists or if they have a more profound understanding of their patients' journeys or if they feel that they are now more cautious because they realized how how deep it can go or just anything they feel is important about this personal experience. If they think it's valuable or rather risky to do that as a therapist, so we will find out going to take some more years. So. Yeah, that's that's going to be very interesting. Did you study maybe comparing the patients with different therapists, whether one has had a psychedelic experience versus one who hasn't? Um, that would be an interesting question. I think that would be quite a, a big study and also complex conduct. Mm-hmm. And we would have to ask each uh, therapist about his experience and then also asking the, the patient. Very interesting. Yeah. A lot a lot more to go into that one. Yeah, because I even see it here um, in my clinic. They always want to know, well, have you done the uh, ketamine treatments yourself? And they always want to know. And I think that's a big question that a lot of my guests always want. Like, should the person that I'm going to mm. be doing the retreat with or whatnot will have extensive experience in the medicine themselves. So that's an interesting um, study that you're doing as well. There's also this uh, paper, I think, by Murphy, colleagues about the therapeutic alliance, which is a predictor for the therapeutic outcome. It's not necessarily about personal experience, but really the therapeutic relationship. We know it from psychotherapy research, just uh, how important that is as a predictor for the therapeutic outcome. And they really also showed it in a psychedelic trial at the Imperial College. Uh, interesting work they do. Nice. And for your um, your research, you actually uh, did a a webinar with a group, and it actually talked about how psychedelics can help shape the therapeutic realm and the therapeutic healing for that what um what was the main outcome more and it doesn't necessarily need to go so scientific more for layman's terms on really how you see that um, shifting for therapy in in our future that was a very interesting topic because on the one hand i think yeah there's a potential for something that many people call paradigm shifts and i have used this word as well but on the other hand i think it's also a bit critical to think that there's going to be a paradigm shift because there's already so much there. So if you look into psychotherapy research, many things that we're discovering now with psychedelics pop up again, and then you can go into the literature of psychotherapy and you find these topics again. So for example, the context sensitivity or the importance of the expectation and the importance of, as I said, the therapeutic relationship and all of these so-called non-specific factors. And we find them now again with psychedelics. So I think there's this kind of potential to bring together a more pharmacologically oriented psychiatry or treatment uh, together with a therapeutic or psychotherapeutic understanding 
So in a way to bring the disciplines together, I think there's a potential. But on the other hand, there's these uh, discussions going on if the if the subjective experience is necessary and if you can't just produce such a molecule without having the subjective experience. I don't know. I think research will show how the patients are doing with these different approaches. And what I can say from my work with patients, I think one thing is really that for some, they go into a process about really opening up to how they feel and what they feel. So also about embodying and uh, psychedelics help this process. So they get into a more holistic understanding of who they are and what they were shaped by and their history. And of course you can do that with psychotherapy as well or with other methods. But the intensity and the depth of these experiences and really also the embodiment, that's something that I often find yeah, very interesting. And also, of course, something that also discussed that some people really also have experiences that go beyond the personal, that go into the mystical or spiritual. These are usually or often topics that are not necessarily addressed in psychotherapy. But if a patient goes goes through this, then as a ther- as a therapist, you just have to be open to accompany these people. So um, I think it also requires therapists to go through an own process of a relationship to the patients, of being open for whatever they go through. And then, yeah. So I think it's really also. Yeah, there's a potential for many people, but real, not for everyone. So right, no, and I, it's definitely true what you said that it's already in existence. It's not, it's not something new. Uh, I think it's really just the access of it, and for the ability to people to be open to utilizing it. You know, right now, especially in the United States, it's you know very taboo. You know not even three years ago when I first opened my clinic, it was really trying to educate. I mean, people thinking ketamine, oh, no way, psychedelics, no way. It was such a big, big no-no. And even just within the three years, it's just completely transformed. And we have psychedelic conferences and you were at MAPS as well, you know, in Colorado and Denver, the MAPS conference. I mean, there was 12,000 people there and it was, oh, the science and the research there was just phenomenal. So we know that it is going to happen and we just need really the therapists, you know, to get on board, psychiatrists and everyone that is caring for patients because it is going to be a paradigm shift in at least for the United States and being able to access it because it's so difficult to access, you know, and then the training programs and in the future when it does become legal, because it, it it will be, I think in 2024, uh, MDMA will become legalized for use for uh, treating PTSD in the U.S., so having that access, so it is it is shifting and it will really help transform and really heal. Um, I do like you know what you were saying as well. It's difficult with the pharmaceutical companies. I think in the the plant medicine and the the psychedelic space, everybody is against the pharmaceutical companies, but there are some pros and cons for 
what they're going to be able to offer because there are people that don't want the psychedelic experience. Although I personally feel that that, like you said, the subjective experience is very, very therapeutic. Even here in certain ketamine clinics, they don't think that the actual experience is of any benefit. Some of them will sedate them or not even worry, oh, there's no, you don't need integration. You don't need (laughs) subject, you know, any type of um, integration for that. You just need the medicine and that's it. And that'll do it the work, but it's not the case. And you've seen it, right? With all your studies, uh, the integration and that the psychotherapy part is very supported. So I really think that um, at least for the U.S., there is going to need to be a shift in the therapeutic space um, for healing once it's legal. I think like in that case, I also have a bias because the patients I'm seeing, they want uh, to receive psychotherapy. They want to have this embedded. Our studies are not yet with patients, so that's another case. So you're more rather supportive rather than therapeutic because it's not a patient. But then again, I think, yeah, for some of the patients, it might be just good to have the drug and that's it. I really don't want to judge that, but I often have the patients in mind and I think we can just ask them what they need. And I think psychedelics are interesting in that term that, yeah, you have to be there. You have to be present and go with whatever comes. And this is something interesting that requires also an openness from therapists. Yes, I love um, Rick Doblin's uh, statements, net zero trauma. Yeah. <laughs> His famous quote, and that is our goal, because we can't always prevent trauma, but we can help prevent the actual trauma response and chronic trauma. Well, we'll see that's your trauma and big, 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 yes. big goal. Yes, yes. But I feel like with every one patient at a time, one patient that you can treat every day, if I can help transform one patient's life to live their best life, it's... I'm I'm doing my part and I I'm actually loving this, you know, and I'm sure you love the fat the studies that you're doing just knowing that it's just so transformative. Back in the day, it would have been career ending if you wanted to study psychedelics. That's Yeah, I think for some it's really a door opener and for some it's just another trying out something and being frustrated and not going further. So, we will have to find out for whom it works and for others it won't work. And that's also a reality we have to face. So as many say, no magic pills. <laughs> and yes. it's still about also going through something. So the pill alone won't, in many cases, won't do the job. So it's going on this journey or for some and for others, it's not the way. So I think you when you were doing... A really quick question, because I was just thinking... Um, with the the study with the combination of the harmine and the DMT and you were doing all the blood draws, were you looking at neurotransmitter balancing like outcomes or was it really just like the metabolites and half-lives? Like neurotransmitter balancing? Right, like uh, for example, like serotonin, norepinephrine, uh, dopamine, like different blood levels or urine levels. Well, there's not... I, um... So one of my colleagues in the team, he's going to do pet studies where he looks also at a receptor affinity and things. 
but we didn't measure like levels of specific neurotransmitters. We looked into BDNF, like neuroplasticity related and a couple of these things, but not like the neurotransmitters themselves. I don't think that this okay. really done. So these are more the PET studies that are coming, where you look into the brain and at the neurotransmitter and at the synoptic uh, level. Right. Yeah, because we all, I mean, everyone does know who has experienced psychedelics or incidentally where they felt better, they felt good, and but we don't know the chemical aspects. So it's really nice knowing that it is being done and it is being studied out there to know, okay, well, you know, because you have these antidepressants that work specifically on serotonin or norepi or dopamine specifically, but then these, and they don't even, some some of them do benefit, but a lot of them don't have the benefits that the other psychedelics have. So I'm definitely always curious about well, what are the blood levels? What does it do to these uh, neurotransmitters? And then the affinity, meaning like how it attracts and um, to the specific sites. So mm. that that is interesting. And that study just started? That study, um, he did a, a study with mice, so animal model that just published, I think, a week ago or so. Oh, nice. And um, yeah, so the human pet study that's about to start, I hope, soon. Yeah, but that's not finished yet. Okay. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So what do you hope to look for in uh, future studies? That, that would, what would be your goal to uh, study in the future? Certainly going into patients with a DMT harmine formulation figure out if it also works patients, for which patients it might work and in which model and with how much support or not. So all these questions, really exploring it with actual patients and clinical trials. And then I have some other questions, uh, research questions I would love to look into. It's always a matter of resources. Um, I'm also very much interested and also preparing something related to women's health in that uh, thing because you know the gender data gap and uh, that women in medicine are under-investigated and uh, we just know not enough about it and women often react differently to substances of all sorts and there's a potential well, that's something I would like to explore a bit more. And, yeah, uh, definitely, because there are a lot of hormonal changes, and there are um, books that are have been published, you know, with women and psilocybin, and when mm -hmm. you know within the cycle of exactly. of their menstruation, how if they can or should do medicine work, or when they're allowed to, or when they should withhold that kind of thing. So I'm sure there's there's a lot to study. So I hope you do get into that. That'll be very yeah, nice. Maybe, uh, yeah, that will be something that I'm most interested in on top of the patient. Yeah, there are so many interesting questions to explore and the lifetime is yeah. just not enough time to go into all that. But I think many people are doing great research and yeah, very good work. And then you find what you're interested in, hopefully in other people's work. Yes. Well, and you as well. Thank you so much because you are there at the forefront doing the hard work, asking the tough questions and doing that for all of us, for all of our knowledge. You know, I just get to be the recipient of all the hard work that you're doing. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you for listening and for inviting me. And oh, definitely, definitely. 
Thank you. Thank you for coming. And this is a wrap. Thank you, everyone, for joining us in this week's dose of psychedelic healing.